one. Welcome back to another episode, Believe in the Press Row, where we dive into deep issues in sports media from coast to coast here in North America. And today, I really want to spend a lot of time talking about uh, the expansion franchise to be the Seattle Kraken. And I'll tell you, when I, when I moved to Seattle the first time, uh, late 2007, 2008, and I was still running the website, torontosportsmedia.com, the first question that occurred is like, do I know anybody or are there any familiar names in the Seattle sports media? And there was one, and he remains in the media today. He was then uh, from the Toronto Star. He is now from the Seattle Times. He is Jeff Baker. Jeff, how are you? I'm doing great. I'm doing great. It's good to talk hockey here locally in, in Seattle. Uh, hope, hope to do a lot more of it as, as the next year unfolds. Yeah, like we, we were talking off air and we're, and we're sitting here today on, uh, you know, towards the end of November. You know, it sounds like as these things always evolve, there's hurling names, calling, you know, everything's on fire right now in the NHL between the PA and the league. I believe you and I did not discuss this, but I believe the dust will settle. I think Gary uh, needs to play a season. I think the players, no matter what they say, no matter how much they think they're being taken advantage of, at the end of the day, it's uh, 100% of zero is zero. So either you play and you get something or you don't and you don't. Um, I think that one of the, I think the two driving reasons that Gary needs to play, one of them is TV. He needs the deal to end in order to negotiate Another one in two, the Seattle Kraken are on the verge of becoming reality. And if they don't finish this season, the when the final check is due, I think will probably become a discussion between the ownership group and the league. Yeah, I mean, there's that. And there's also, I mean, Gary Bettman learned 15 years ago when they lost their entire season to the, um, to the lockout that, that it really hurts the product when you miss a season. Uh, you're, you're off fans' radar and you know, life goes on without you. And the last thing you need is people discovering, hey, I don't really, you know, those borderline fans that are right on the fence. You don't need them saying, hey, I, you know what? My life, my life is okay without hockey. I don't necessarily need to spend all this waking time watching it on TV or, or buying tickets to go see it played at a game. I, I like other sports I can do without it. And they learned a hard lesson with that. I think it took them a while to get back on, on the track they were on before that lockout. And they, that they absolutely don't want that happening again you know as far as Seattle's money goes they, they know it's coming eventually and so you know the flip side of that is if you don't play there's owners they're going to save a whole lot of money by not having to operate their teams especially the bad teams so you know it, it works both ways in, in that direction uh, I don't know that they're going to necessarily worry too much about the crack and paying their bills they'll, they'll either get it you know when it's due uh, this coming year or they'll get it after that but uh, I, I think from, from a momentum standpoint, though, it probably does not help this market and what the Kraken has to do in this market if the league isn't playing games and having at least a semblance of a season this coming year. You know, that said, they got to do it safely. And, um, you know, it's not, an easy, it's not an easy equation now with what's happening uh, with COVID. So it's interesting. Let's, let's park the Kraken for a minute. Um... You're a well-known name in the Toronto sports media and the Canadian media centered because you covered the Blue Jays for so long. It's amazing. You were a, a, a lightning rod, if you will, for stories that you wrote that got investigated only to find out there was no evidence of anything wrong going on. Um, lots of people didn't like what you wrote, but that doesn't mean that it wasn't true. Um, the most interesting one, I think, to me is the, uh, the Tim Johnson one. Um, those people who don't remember, Tim Johnson was the manager of the Blue Jays. We are talking 1998-ish, uh, uh, came in with a lot of fanfare. You're gonna have a lot more details I'm sure you can color in with, but he came in and you suddenly reported that he had, start, he had started to tell some stories about a military career that hadn't actually existed. Yeah, it's funny. I came in in June of uh, 1998. And, you know, that that season in Toronto gets remembered for a whole bunch of other stuff as well. I mean, Roger Clemens was on that team. So it was Jose Canseco, our, our, the, uh, the, the, the strength trainer at the time was a guy named Brian McNamee, 
who ended up uh, pretty infamous. Uh, he got into a huge legal battle with Roger Clemens over his steroid, his alleged PED usage, and they ended up going back and forth at each other. It was good national TV for a while. So I, I, I came in right in the middle of all that in, in 98 in Toronto. And then I started hearing whispers amid all of that. Uh, the, the team was actually doing okay. They were having their first half decent season in a while. Um, but so I step in in June of 98, I come over from Montreal and I'm the new guy. So before long, um, some of the coaches just, uh, and, and some of the players started mentioning things to me about, uh, about these Vietnam stories that are going around. And, you know, I didn't want to believe it at the time because it sounded so preposterous, um, but, but, you know, they, they kind of got louder and louder. And the thing is, when you're the new guy, sometimes people trust you a little more than they do some of the other guys, especially if they don't necessarily get along with some of the people in the media. So, uh, I, you know, I had no, nobody had any access to grind with me yet. And, and so I had written a few stories, though, that, that I, I think won the trust over of people. I think they saw right away I wasn't going to be a shill for, for team management, which sort of carried over here into my Seattle days <laughs> well, that won me, won me a lot of uh, favor with, with some people in the clubhouse. And um, yeah, I started to hear more and more. And then uh, after the season was over, I ended up going to, uh, well, actually uh, rewind that a little, you know what? I'm flying home from a trip. Last road trip of the season was to Tampa Bay. So it's late September and I'm flying home and I have to write an off day story for the star. They absolutely want an off day story. And I'm thinking, you know, instead of just writing the usual fluff piece off day story that we did so that we could get a day off, I'm, I'm sitting there on the plane. I'm saying, I'm going to write something that actually is going to wake people up. And I said, I'm going to float the, the whole Tim Johnson Vietnam stories thing out there because I, by now I talked to quite a few people and, and, you know, there was Johnson was always denying to people that he didn't, that he said anything about Vietnam. Uh, but I kept hearing this more and more and more that he would, he had talked about Vietnam. And so, what I wrote was, it was a story saying that he's going to have a problem in the offseason because there's a big rift brewing between the coaching staff. Uh, some of them were Gord Ash, who's the GM. Some of them were his guys. Others were Johnson's guys. And, and there was a real headbutting that was going to come. And, and they were already, there had been a, he, he had gotten in a pretty heated argument in a hotel bar in Texas, I think it was, that I happened to be sitting, right, have a front row seat for. And that was interesting. So I basically threw together a story, basically mentioning that, mentioning the stuff that's been out there about Vietnam. And it, yeah, it basically hit the fan from there that particular week. And Johnson spent the whole week denying that he'd ever said anything about Vietnam to anybody. Um, and so anyway, fast forward a couple of weeks, I ended up going to uh, Dominican Republic to do a bunch of stories on Hurricane George um, that had basically decimated the island. I, and I, I had some ball players. Uh, take me around there and show me places. And during the course of that trip, I got some information about some players I should call about the Vietnam thing. And I ended up doing that. I wound up calling a bunch of players and, um, and they, they basically, a couple of them went on the record uh, about the Vietnam stories that Johnson was telling. And so it ends up being a front page story in the star uh, on a Saturday in mid October and that really lit up because I remember David Amber, who's now a hockey, uh, a hockey guy over at Sportsnet. He was at uh, TSN at the time, and he actually did the story on it. And they, they basically, it was the lead item on, on TSN in Canada, that story. And they had a big shot of, of the, the, the whole page layout of my story. And so that, that really, really hit the fan at that point in Canada. And he denied it. He kept on denying it. And then the big problem he had was that... Back in those days, there was no internet, no Twitter, or else the thing would have been, it would have blown up in a day. But back then, things were slow. And so uh, Will McDonough at the Boston Globe, the late Will McDonough, Sean McDonough's dad, um, was a longtime columnist. And so this is about November, I want to say, a few weeks after my story, he goes, hey, I hear there was a big hullabaloo up in Toronto about Tim Johnson telling war stories and whether he did or didn't. And he said, he used to tell them all the time here in Boston. <laughs> and he used to tell them. And then he got a couple of guys saying, oh, yeah, I remember Tim Tone. And that was it. The jig was up. And so the, the winter meetings were not too long after that. And he had a press conference and, and fessed up to the whole thing, admitted he'd been telling the war stories. Um, and 
you know, the rest is history. He tried to come back in March of 99. I, I remember it like yesterday and, and he didn't. I had actually, I had gone in to talk to him. That, that was a hard conversation. Uh, it's one of the harder ones I've had to do. I mean, the one thing you have to do in this business, if you're going to take shots at people and, and, and be, you have to be accountable, you have to show up and face them. And I did, um, you know, we sat in his office and I told him, look, like, I want to try to make this work. And he, 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 to his credit, he said the same thing. And he never, uh, you know, he never made things difficult for me that spring. I mean, obviously he wasn't a, a fan because we had basically destroyed his life. And, but he didn't make it through spring training. At that point, the other Toronto media kind of figured out that this wasn't something I made up, that this was actually a true story. And so a few of them were pretty resistant at the beginning. But then once he apologized at the winter meetings all winter long, it was open season on Tim Johnson. Then all these columnists who were kind of hesitant to weigh in on it before were suddenly jumping in and, and kicking the man when he was down and uh, he got run out. Uh, so he, he didn't make the season. And, you know, I, I have mixed feelings about it. Um, you know, I used to think, you know, he got what was coming to him, but in the end, he kind of got a life sentence for this. He lost, he lost his baseball career, lost his managerial career. You know, there, there's been, there's been rapists. There's been um, people that have practically killed people that have been allowed back in a pro sports. And he was never allowed back in the major leagues because of a lie he told about the war. I mean, being a Canadian, we look at military stuff a little differently. I think up in Canada, I don't know. I don't know, you know, maybe lying about being a veteran is different up there. Uh, here they take it very seriously. And, and, you know, I don't know that the punishment fit the crime in his case, uh, I know that his life was, was, was pretty destroyed over it. And, and, you know, that's not something I take pride in. So, um, a friend of his reached out not too long ago, wanted to put us in touch and, uh, you know, he was doing it on his own and, and he gave me his contact info and Johnson said it'd be okay. We, we, I haven't, I haven't reached out yet. Cause I'm not sure what I would say. I'm not sure what you say to a person who's I mean, I've seen documentaries done on him. I mean, he's made it clear his life was pretty upended by this thing. And it's, it's, it's something I would do again, but I, you know, I have trouble with the, the punishment that he got. I don't, I don't think it fits the crime. I think it's, it's a little overboard being bashed. Don't you think though, that it's not so much the lie as it is the continuation and the denial of telling the lie. And if he had explained it at the outset as, look, I fibbed. I was trying to get the guys to buy into a certain thing. I was trying to build camaraderie. It was 100% wrong. Shouldn't have done it. I want to move on from it. Things would have been different. I, I think so. I think especially today's world. Um, yeah, you know, I, I, I think, I think we're, we're too much of a land of second chances sometimes. Uh, here in the U.S. I, I think it's gotten more and more that way over the last 20 years. I think people are just so, uh, you, you know, they don't even wait for people to serve their sentence anymore. They're already planning to forgive them. I think a lot of that says more about us that want to forgive than it does about the people that we're asking forgiveness for. I think people don't want to necessarily be accountable at times. I think it's easier just to forgive and forget. No, I just everybody. mean like maybe he doesn't get the life sentence if, no, he, no, I, I if he admitted it. That's all. Yeah, I know what you're talking about. It's uh, the problem is, I mean, he was he was clearly afraid, and you know, but it's like anything else. The punishment, the uh, not the punishment, the um, the cover-ups always worse than the crime. Right. Oh, so, yeah. I mean, he did try to cover it up. I, I, I honestly, I've thought about that as well. The, the, I don't know that I agree. I think I think had he admitted to it right away, he would have been crucified. And uh, Toronto was a Toronto with Jim Fergozzi, the late Jim Fergozzi used to, he once said this to me, he said, cause he worked in Philadelphia and Toronto and, and Toronto is a four newspaper town, Philadelphia, multiple newspapers, but he said, you know, Philadelphia is a tough town. He said, it's got its reputation. It is, it's a tough town, tough sports town, tough media town, tough sports media town. And he said, but Toronto is a mean town. Toronto is a mean sports media town. And, and I, I've thought for years about that. And he, I mean, he was as experienced with the media as anybody. Um, I've thought about that. I think the thing in Toronto was we had four daily newspapers at the time, a lot of competition. And they wouldn't kill you with, a, with one big dynamite story, you know, but it was the little henpecking over time. It was a death by a thousand paper cuts that would get to you. And, and it's like once, once there was blood in the water, 
uh, with, with a tough subject like that, they would come and they would henpeck you to death. They, they, they wouldn't let it go. They would just keep bringing it up. And then another newspaper would take their turn and then two others would take their turn. And then the cycle would go on for about a week and then it would start over again. And so I don't know that he would have survived that. You know, he might not have been out in, in, in a couple of days, but I think it would have been a horrific couple of weeks for him had he admitted it right away. And I don't think he would have survived it. Um, yeah, I, I think he would have lost either way, to be honest with you. And, and he, had a, he had a good situation. He was in Canada. If it was in the U.S., I, I, I'm sure after we wrote our initial story, I think a few more media would have, would have jumped on it a little quicker than they did up in Toronto. It's if interesting that you say that. I had, uh, I had Brian Burke sitting in your seat uh, a couple of weeks ago. And what he said, and I'm not sure if you've seen his, his latest book, but highly recommended it is, you know, somebody who covers the game and, and, and now Brian's a, a colleague of yours in the media, if you will. Um, he, he said, what he basically says about the Toronto media isn't so much that it's tough uh, the way I think Fergosi would call it tough. It's the volume and that either as a player, coach, or manager, especially in, in, in hockey, I don't think it's that much different in baseball, by the way. Um, it's, it's reporters from four papers, two all sports TV stations, two all sports radio stations. It is, it's on, like when it's on, it's on and it's the volume. Uh, do you agree with that? Oh, for sure. And, and no, Fergosi didn't think it was tough, but he did think it was mean. And you can be mean without being tough. You know, a mean guy, when somebody's down and hurt on, on the street, will go and drop kick him again. That, that's mean. Right. It doesn't mean you have to fight him if he was healthy. It just means he got a mean streak to you. So there was a bit of a mean-spiritedness there, I think. And, you know, I, 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 maybe I contributed to it. I don't know. I always tried to be fair. You know, I could be, I could be tough. But I always tried to be fair to people, um, you know, and that said, I don't want to make it sound like I'm disparaging the, the Toronto media. There's a lot of guys that I like. I like Steve Simmons a lot. Always have uh, Rich Griffin. Uh, he's now the Blue Jays PR guy, but he, he was one of my favorite columnists when he was there. Even 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 despite the fact we were working together, uh, I still thought he was a good columnist. And, uh, yeah, you know, uh, Rosie DeMano was great when I worked there and she was working in sports at the time. Uh, and they Christy Blatchford over at the Sun, and you know, there's great people, Stephen Brunt at the Globe and Mail, uh, all kinds of really talented people working in that market when I was there. But yeah, the volume you put them all together, it's uh, it can Why? be it's not fun if you're an athlete, um, and, and you and you get on the wrong side of things. That's uh, and, and honestly, that's what I tell people here, you know, people, people say, like, how do we stay on your good side? And they say it jokingly, but I say, you want to stay on my good side and you want to make things easier on yourself. Don't make things hard on me. And, and what I mean by that is don't go and get yourself into some kind of trouble off the field that, you know, I'm going to have to look into because I can't look the other way on it. You know, some people will. I can't. I, I'm not going to look the other way on it. So if something crosses my radar and, and it's bad, uh, you know, I, I can't. I told that to Milton Bradley when he was with uh, when he was with the Mariners. He went and got himself in trouble for assaulting his wife. And, you know, we were all over it for, for a few days, just just hounding his lawyer, hounding the, uh, the crown attorney. First thing he says to me when he shows up at spring training, somehow the Mariners let him go back to spring training. I'll never understand that. But that's that's for them to answer. And he shows up and, and you know, we, we and he comes very quiet. Like Milton wasn't a guy that would go all loud and get in your face. Like he, the scary part of him was when he was quiet because he'd come up and he's got this crazy little smile and, and, and you say, yeah, you, you're really interested in, in my ex-wife and me, in, in my wife and me. And, and I said, uh, well, not more than anybody he goes, you're the only one around here that's writing about this. And I said to him, and I swear to God, I did say this to him. I say, Milton, I'll make you a deal. If you don't go get yourself arrested for hitting your wife, you know, I won't go and write about you getting arrested. <laughs> he didn't really talk after that. We actually had a decent relationship at times, but I mean, he was just too off the rails to, uh, uh, you know, at, at various times to, and, and just the problems piled up one after the other. But that's what I tell people. I tell them that story. Don't make my life difficult and I won't make your life difficult. That's all there is to it. Don't go get arrested. And I won't have to write about you being arrested. But so it's interesting, right? Like, 
there, there's numerous stories that you've written about that are controversial. Uh, and as I said, it's like each one, hell gets raised about the veracity of it. And yet there's no smoke, right? Like the story is what the story is. Uh, it happened numerous times again in Toronto. And then uh, the Eric Wedge story here at the Mariners. And then what's interesting is as they've happened here in Seattle, you just either get nominated for or end up winning awards for these stories that people cry foul over. Um, the, the interesting one obviously is, and it's a good segue is, you know, the possibility of where this arena was going to be for an NBA, a proposed NBA franchise that is on hold or no more, whatever you want to call it, um, that turned out to be a hockey arena at the old site of the uh, CA, the, C, the NBA arena where, uh, key arena where now the um, Kraken are about to play. People who aren't familiar, um, the Mariners Stadium and the Seahawks Stadium is in a part of town called Soto. Uh, that area was picked by investment bankers to try and build a new stadium for NBA purposes with the idea is if we build NBA and we get the league to come back, yes, one day we could envision hockey coming back, uh, didn't get on the rails, all sorts of issues with the proposal. Uh, lo and behold, uh, the Lewickies the enter the picture, a name very well known to Torontonians and Canadian sports fans. They come in, they propose taking Key Arena, which was a financial albatross to the city, off the city's hands. They pour close to a billion dollars into it, fix it up, and now we're getting an NHL first arena, and everyone's hoping that uh, that becomes an NBA home too as well. Yeah, I mean, there was. it's funny, if you go and Google... Google stuff from like 2015 that I was writing about it and put my name in there and you'll see what comes up. You'll see some of the stuff that was said at the time. And I, I go back and look now just for a laugh. Sometimes I'll actually read it. it wasn't necessarily funny at the time. It was, there was a lot of pressure because, you know, we literally were the only ones in the city saying, uh, you know, this key arena thing might work. They might want to take a, a second look at this. And, and it, it had, honestly nothing to do with Chris Hansen, who was the guy that was trying to build the arena in Soto, had nothing to do with him being uh, a bad person or, or, you know, a guy that was out to get anybody. It, and honestly, at the time, he was offering the best proposal that was out there. The problem with Chris Hansen was that when you dug a little bit beneath the surface, he had, he has money, definitely. I'd love to have the money that, that he has. I mean, worth millions of dollars. Nobody's going to deny that. He's, he's a wealthy individual, but is he wealthy enough to be a primary owner who builds an arena and gets a team kind of individual? No, he's not. It's not even close. And if you look at what's going on in the NHL alone nowadays, it's all about billionaires, billionaire owners. They have more billionaires now than they've ever had even close to going back, you know, 10, 20 years. It's, it's, they, they, they've got, I think half the league now is actually bonafide billionaires or more. Um, and that's just for hockey, but that's pro sports. It's very different. So what Chris Hansen wanted to do is use other people's money to build the arena. And there's nothing wrong with that. Tim Lywicki is doing that to a, to a certain degree. But Chris Hansen wanted to uh, build this Soto Arena with other people's money. And he didn't want to build the arena until he had the guarantee of the NHL coming, uh, the NF, uh, sorry, the NBA coming here. And that was a huge problem because anytime I would ask Adam Silver this, and I asked him, I think in person on, on two or three separate occasions, one year after the other, I'd go up to Adam Silver. And by the last time, which was in 2016, before the vote on the Soto Arena that, that eventually killed the project, uh, I asked him, I think two weeks before, and he knew what I was going to ask him. He said, you're going to ask me this again, aren't you? Because it was at this annual meeting thing that I would go to in New York City. So he knew right away who I was. He knew what I was going to ask him. And we were at the drinking fountain. I said, look, I'm going to ask you the question. And the cameras are going to be rolling. And he goes, no, no, I want you to ask me the question. Ask me, you know, because I said, I know what your answer is going to be. And I asked him and he said, not only will a Soto, a vote in favor of the Soto Arena by city council, not only will that not bring an, an NBA team to Seattle or change our expansion focus, um, we're actually very interested in looking at Key Arena. We think there's a lot of good things that can be done there. Now, why did he think that at the time? Because he's best friends with Tim Lewicki going back 20, 30 years. And, you know, he knew that Lewicki was out there wanting to buy, wanting to do this, but he was blocked by these, this Soto 
uh, deal from having anybody come in and do this. So yeah, people say, oh, it was rigged. It was always gonna go to the Oakview Group and Tim Laiwiki, they were always gonna get Kirina. Well, it wasn't rigged, but look, if you have a group, if you have one guy on one side that's built half the arenas on the planet, on planet Earth, uh, the most recognizable arena builder on the planet, bar none, it's not even close. Um, you've got a team of, he's teamed up with Irving Azoff, who's like the music mogul that controls like half the entertainment industry right now. He's got another partner in Live Nation that controls the other half. Um, you know, you, you can't, and then, you know, on the side, just to bring in as a team president, you'll throw in Todd Lywicki, who's like his brother and the number, number two or number three guy at the NFL. You can't beat that. You just can't beat that if you're Chris Hansen. That's not a slight on Chris Hansen. You can't beat it if you're Jeff Baker. You can't beat it if you're 100 Jeff Bakers. You're just not going to beat it. Um, and, and so that ball game was over the minute they opened up Key Arena for competition because they knew the Lywickies were going to come in. And eventually, all of them would come in. Um, and, and people forget they were trying to build an arena in Bellevue in, in 2015. And it was a guy named Jack Sperling who was trying to put together a last ditch effort to get this in so they could apply for an NHL expansion on time in 2015. They were trying to build it in the suburb of Bellevue. It was a, a really hasty effort, but they had him. Todd Lywicki swears he wasn't involved in that, but Todd Lywicki was the GM of the, oh, sorry, was the, um, was, was the CEO of the Tampa Bay Lightning at the time. And Jack Sperling was his business partner going back 20 years to their days in Minnesota together. And so, so those guys and anybody behind the scenes who knew what was going on knew that that was the arena project to look out for. You know, there was talk about one in Tukwila, which, you know, was interesting as well. I don't know how real that ever was. Um, but the Bellevue thing was real and those guys were involved. And, and that's why the NHL was interested and the city was interested. They, they weren't as interested in time after this was by 2015. And it's just interesting. Um, that, that fell apart because um, uh, venture capitalists they had that were going to come in and do it. Did, they didn't. Um, so it was July. But you know, they, they allowed because they knew that the team were getting uh, whether it was in Bellevue. I mean, getting to know these people took years. I mean, it took, it took a long time to figure out what was going on behind the scenes. It took a long time to figure out that a lot of what was being said in public was, was a lot of misinformation being put out there. And, and um, you know, I made some mistakes for sure in the coverage. You know, there was, was one guy we wrote about, an investor who turned out to be a bit of a sham investor who had talked about redoing Key Arena, but uh, it was more of a joke than anything else. And I, I, went, I went to print with that way too fast. But other than that, there's not too much more I, I would pull back on and regret from writing about that stuff. But yeah, I took a lot of heat. People saying I was bought off and apologized privately we're saying those things look we, we can have a disagreement but you start you know throwing accusations like that out there yeah it didn't it didn't sit very well there were some people i didn't talk to for years um I, i'd say I'm, I'm on good terms with the vast majority of them at this stage uh because you know nothing like the truth will will help set you free eventually it just took a while for the truth to materialize i mean this arena thing went on uh probably about four years longer than it should have um well what what people don't realize is that Seattle then was booming. It was, from an economic standpoint, when I say it was on fire, I mean that as a good thing, right? Like rent was up, every business was on, was booming, expanding. Um, the homeless issue was just kind of starting. It wasn't what it is now. The political unrest was not here at all. Um, Seattle was one of the hottest, if not the hottest market in the country at that time. Um, and, and that was driving a lot of what Chris Hansen was doing. I mean, look, he, he envisioned his own kind of L.A. live down in uh, down in the Soto district. And, you know, had he managed to get the arena built with other people's money and, and on spec basically, well, no, he wouldn't do it on spec. But had he managed to get it built, let's say the NBA was willing to give him a franchise so that he could go out then and get the investors he needed to build it. You know, yeah, he would have been, you know, 
wealthy, like several times beyond his current wealth. And he would have done the city a favor too. I mean, there's not, I'm not, I, I don't hold anything against him because he wanted to make money. You can't, in the sports world, everybody wants to make money. Tim Lywicki wants to be rich. Todd Lywicki wants to be wealthy. They're not doing this for charity. So Chris Hansen was going to turn a nice buck on his land had he gotten the Soto Arena built. Uh, and he would have done, you know, a civic favor for the city had the NBA been willing to give him a team. Problem is the NBA still hasn't been willing to give anybody a team. Uh, Adam Silver's best friends with Tim Lewicki hasn't given him a team yet because they're not ready to expand. And, and they were saying, they've been saying this for about five or six years consistently to anybody who will listen. And I think more people have listened now. Uh, and uh, I will say if they don't have a team within like two or three years of the NHL starting, I'll be very surprised if there's no NBA team right because that's part of the master plan. It always has been. And that's, that's where the huge money is. So big, big money in that. And uh, they've got huge money behind this team, starting with David Bonnerman, the owner of the hockey team, who's, who's a, a billionaire, you know, several times over. Um, it's just, it's just a deep pocketed ownership that just blows away anything Chris Hansen or any other local person was going to bring to the table um, in, in that regard. Steve Ballmer would have been a difference maker. Sure. But he opted to go, to another market you know he had plenty of opportunities to do his his thing here in seattle and didn't do it for one reason or the other and so after that the the, the pickings were slim as they would say and uh, so they ended up with an ownership group that's pretty i would say it's one of the, <laughs> it's good it, it would be hard to top this ownership group and i'm talking about everybody the minority partners the majority investors in, in any sport on this continent um it, it would be tough to find a more diverse and uh, experienced and skilled ownership group than this team is going to have. All right, I'll let you take a deep breath for a second. We'll pay a bill here too. I talk a lot. So, so, so the NFL season is in full swing. Our Hawks pulled one out last night. Wasn't the greatest game, but a win is a win, especially the way they've been playing lately. Uh, you may not be going to games, but you can still bet on them. Uh, may have had a couple of wagers on. Not this week. I lost. Not not this week. I learned my lesson from last week. Uh, anyways, you can bet on game spreads, totals, team players, coaching props. Bet online gives you more options to wager than any place online. There's always the casino as well. It never closes. Head to betonline.ag today and take advantage of all the great sign-up bonuses. Again, that's betonline.ag. Sign up today. Jeff, I'm not sure if you remember, but back in the day, Toronto's a big city. Trying to get a handyman to do odd jobs around the house is a pain in the you-know-what. The guys at Jiffy On Demand are the best. Uh, I use them all the time. I've strongly encouraged them to come out here to Seattle. There's just no way to get some of the services done that you need done. Hard to believe you actually can't find someone to clean your barbecue if you actually need it professionally clean. Jiffy On Demand gets it done. Go to the app. You can download it or go to jiffyondemand.com. Jiffy save $25 on your first order. Use keyword save at checkout. Again, jiffyondemand.com or in your app store. So let's let's pivot. So you're now here. Um, the arena is being built. It looks really good. Uh, they launched a name that I will admit I wasn't overly in favor of, but for as negative as that may be, I don't think anyone anywhere is disappointed by, I mean, the, the uniform and the merchandise and the logo are, are killer. Um, I think in all of sports, they're, they're, they're amongst the top right now. The stuff looks great. Um, it's just great stuff. And I'm actually, I'm really looking forward to jerseys coming out. Yet here we are, uh, eight, nine months away from non-business meaningful hockey things going to happen. Coaches are going to need to be hired. Um, there's an expansion draft. There's another draft, you know, the, the regular entry draft. And not only that, like I would imagine that the powers that be in the media radio, TV, print, or e-print, whatever you want to call it these days, uh, are going to have a rare opportunity, should the players and, and league figure this out, to start using the current season whenever it gets played as an introduction uh, for hockey fans in this market to start paying attention because the players playing are going to be on your Seattle Kraken that first year. And yet here we are sitting here, and I'm talking about just actual NHL experience, uh, there's two people in the media. Ryan Clark is moving back to the area from Denver where he covered the abs for uh, two years. Yourself, who at least has the Toronto experience by your own admission, you're not a hockey guy. You're, 
you're more of a, a general sports guy or a baseball guy or a business sports guy who has subbed in from time to time covering some hockey games. Um, that's it. There is no one else in market who has NHL experience. Uh, there's some people that do have some minor league or some junior. Um, they hired uh, Everett, Everett Fitzhugh to be the voice of the team. It sounds to me like that's going to be radio. The rumor is that uh, John Forsland, who's the play-by-play guy for the Carolina Hurricanes, sounds like he's the number one rumored guy to be the TV voice. But from external media, um, in order to get people excited and interested, and that's not the team's job, that's the media's job, and a rare opportunity to grow audience, which is impossible to do, it seems like it's a bit of a wasteland right now. It is, and, and I should mention, you did touch on uh, Ian Furness over at uh, Sports Radio KJR. is uh, very well grounded in junior hockey, um, and, and and you know by 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 extension, he knows a lot of the people that are in pro hockey right now. I mean, he he is a hockey guy first before he became a football guy here in Seattle. So um, Furness is very experienced with hockey, and Mike Salk is a huge hockey guy. Uh, over at 710 ESPN Seattle, he's a the program director there, and also. Uh, very popular on-air host when he's actually on the air, but I could see him hosting uh, some pretty good hockey dialogue uh, once once this thing kicks off. And um, but yeah, other than that, it's going to be it's going to take some growing into. Um, uh, Andy Andy, uh, uh, I always mispronounce his name. Andy Ide Edie uh, is very very grounded in the uh, in the amateur side of things um, when it comes to when it comes to hockey. He knows a lot of the guys, so he'll be good when it comes to things like drafts and things and and. I, I see he's done some work for ESPN and uh, probably so there's, there's going to be, you know, some people that definitely know the game. I think what's lacking in the market right now is a knowledge of the history of the league. And, and that's important. You might not think it's important to know who like the old timers are, uh, who Milt Schmidt is or who, uh, uh, you know, everybody knows Bob Yor, but you know, do you know who uh, Orel Joliet was, you know, probably not. But it is good to, to have a grounding in the history. It is good to know what came before you so that you know what can come after. Uh, I had lunch uh, about a month and a half ago, uh, a socially distanced lunch with uh, Bert Marshall, who played for years in the NHL. He actually, interesting guy. He lives out here in, in Paulsbo, um, just on one of the San Juan Islands. Uh, sorry, on the uh, Kitsap uh, Peninsula. But he... Um, he, so he lives out in Paulsbo. He never really lived here prior to that. And he spent 15, uh, about 15 years in the NHL. He was a runner up for the rookie of the year award in 1965. And he was Gordie Howe's teammate with the Detroit Red Wings. And then he basically groomed all those New York Islanders teams um, that won four straight Stanley cups. Everybody forgets all through the seventies, they were a really good up and coming franchise. They could have won a couple of more cups. They tended to blow uh, playoff series. Late, late in late in later rounds uh, until they finally won in 1980. But Bert was with them all the way through 79. And he was a guy, he was a stay at home defenseman, but he nurtured like Dennis Potvin. And, um, you, you know, he was there when all these guys at like Clark Gillies were coming up, Bob Nystrom, all these people were getting brought in by the Islanders. And he was one of the guys Al Arbor brought over and he had played for Al Arbor with the California seals. And so Al brought him over there to help study them. So I was talking to Bert and he said, you know, a lot of the younger fans today, they don't get, just how tough it was to play in those days. And, you know, they dismiss it all. They say everybody back then was a bunch of goons. And he goes, there were goons, but they weren't, they, there wasn't all goons there. He said, there's a reason the game right now is, the, is being played the way it's, it's played. There's a reason they've had a lot of these rule changes. And some people think the rule changes are for the, for the good. And some people think they're not for the good. He tends to go a mix of in between. Um, but he said, a lot of them just don't understand what happened before a certain time period. And, and I agree with them. I think there's people out there that just, um, you know, they think hockey started in 2005 and, and that it's a great game now, but yeah, it took a lot of things to get it to where it is right now. Um, yeah. I, I'm, I'm one of the guys that don't, doesn't want to see brawls every night. Uh, I thought it was cool when I was 12 years old and 13, but, but I also didn't have to go on the ice and get my head kicked in every night. And so it was easier back then. Uh, now that I'm older and I understand, you know, the repercussions of, of violence in sports, um, especially with concussions and the like, you know, I don't want to see that any more than anybody else does. Uh, but there's a reason they cleaned up the game. There's a reason why certain things are the way they are, but there's also a reason why certain thinking in the league hasn't changed. Um, you know, there's people that don't want to get fighting out of the game entirely. And they're, they're Some of them are pacifists. Some of them think you need that, 
little exit valve, valve, you need that security valve to let off a little bit of steam so that things don't get uh, any worse than, than, than they are. And, and what I mean is, I mean, you see, you see head injuries happening a lot now in hockey that you might not have seen back in the day when they didn't have helmets because people are not as, as uh, people back then were a little more careful about who they slammed into the boards from behind about, about lifting their stick above their waist you know now you get people get now they have visors and everything because people were literally you know we were talking about brian berard people were literally losing eyes and going blind because of stick injuries and, and puck injuries and 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 everything i mean it was just so care carefree it, it is so carefree nowadays compared to what it was i think it's the pendulum swinging a little the other way now because people are aware of concussions and head injuries and the rules have definitely changed um to prevent them but i mean if you go back to the 60s and 50s you didn't see as many people getting slammed headfirst into the boards like like you like you did nowadays up until the rule changes that recently came in. Um, so I mean, you got to understand the pendulum. You got to understand why things went the way they were. Everybody thinks the Broad Street bullies in Philadelphia came along and started beating people up just out of thin air. That's not what happened. What happened was the St. Louis Blues prior to them used used to terrorize with the Plager brothers and and Noel uh, Picard and and and, and these these. They, they were basically thugs on the ice and they would go out and they would literally, you know, kick the living daylights out of other teams. And that's what caused the Philadelphia Flyers to get into an arms race, literally an arms race, a big bicep arms race to, to, to basically go out and be able to fight them on the ice and win games. And, and that's what happened. And that went out of control in the NHL. It continued all through the seventies, not necessarily brawling, but definitely fighting in the eighties became a regular occurrence every night. It was more, you know, you had brawls, but it was more one-on-one -on -one fighting, but every team had designated goons. They didn't have designated goons back in the 60s and 50s, but it evolved. The game evolved. And so if you don't understand the evolution, you don't understand the steps you need to take necessarily to head it off. I think getting rid of the goons in hockey was a good thing for hockey. I mean, I was the biggest John Cordick and Chris Nyland fan that, that was out there as a Canadians fan, but yeah, you know, Nyland could at least play. I mean, Nyland almost scored 30 goals one year, but you know, Cordick, as much as I admire what he did for the Canadians, I mean, there's no place for that in, in the game anymore. And, and I think, you know, people are able to identify where the problem spots were and they've gotten it largely out of the game. Now you can't afford to carry a goon on, on your squad that can't skate really fast and, and score goals nowadays because uh, it, it's just the game is totally, is totally changed. But I understand that because I lived through a lot of it watching it firsthand. Um, you know, I, I wonder sometimes how Eric Lindros's career would have would have turned out. I mean, he was a Hall of Famer, but he didn't quite have the career people thought he was going to have. I, I watched him in the Memorial Cup. I actually covered the 1990 Memorial Cup when he was in it for the Oshawa Generals. And, and I remember at the time, everybody was was saying, like, this guy is going to be better than Gretzky, better than Lemieux. And he might have been because he had the power. He had the, 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 uh, the strength that those guys didn't necessarily have and the temperament he had. But but his career was cut short because of concussion. It was just such a violent game when he came up and played by, by the, uh, you know, by the early nineties, it had become such a violent game that, I mean, his career was definitely cut short because of it. So, um, you know, it's, it's just interesting. And I think that's what we're lacking, not, not a history of fighting in the league, but we're lacking people with, with just a knowledge of the history of the game itself and what it used to look like and what it is now. And I think that that's going to come over time. Um, but you know, I think if I was a new hockey writer here, I would take some time to learn more about the past. Um, and that will put you really ahead of the game, especially when you're writing it, because when I'm writing on deadline, I don't have time to go looking things up in the encyclopedia. I got to know what happened. Bing bang. So if I have an anecdote that happened 30 years ago in my head that I can relate to present day stuff, that'll make my story look even better. Uh, on the flip side, I, I need personally to learn a lot more about today's players a lot more about today's prospects. The guys hovering just below the surface. I think that's something I could work on uh, coming forward. I don't think I'm as strong as, at that as some other people. So that's definitely an area I plan to focus on. I mean, here's what, here's what worries me. If you, and maybe people listening to this don't, don't appreciate the market. But if I said to you for a minute, the NBA is coming back. Let's just say the NBA is coming. Forget the back. Forget the Sonics ever existed. Forget there was a history. If I said to you tomorrow, the NBA is coming, not only is there instant media, there's fan acceptance because the NBA is the phenomenon. 
But there's people in the media, although they don't cover it here for a local team, they know the game. Hockey is just a, and you know this, hockey is just different. Um, we as Canadians, sorry, we as Canadians don't necessarily get it. But south of the border, there is an adoption. There is a lack of understanding. If you remember, Gary Bettman brought in, brought in the flaming puck uh, to try and make it easier for Americans to follow the game. Completely foreign to us. Um, so there, there is this phenomenon out there that it's not just picking up a game because there's nuances to it that make it maybe more challenging that if you weren't raised on it, you aren't going to get. So, so that's one. That's the challenge of just saying people can pick it up. Yeah, of course they can, but who's educating them? How are they going to do it? And then you add in the component that you said, which is the history, which is really hard to understand. The, the difference is, to me, it's, there's a massive opportunity that I hope doesn't get blown. And what people may not understand about this market right now is the Mariners are a complete non-entity. Nobody pays attention to them. Uh, th this, this pandemic was just a, you know, stadium didn't look any different, uh, except the Blue Jays didn't come to fill it three or four times a year. Um, the reality is you have the Seahawks that play. And this town reminds me a lot of Miami, where I used to live with the Dolphins, where 12 months of the year, sports radio is talking about the third string kicker being cut, right? Like, that's big news here. So this is Seahawks, Seahawks, Seahawks. Um, you know, the same way Trump was saying Corona, 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 or COVID, COVID, COVID. Like, that's what this town is. And they play once a week. Um, when you take them out of it, and if you don't have Husky you know, college football or college basketball to lay there in, there is a massive, massive window of opportunity for this team to encapture and take over the marketplace. And they are hoping like hell that they get at least a couple of years that you talked about to have the market to themselves before the NBA does come, because then that's a whole different battle. So I don't think that's an accident. I mean, that's, that's probably being done on purpose that of way. Course. But my point is from a media, if they don't get the right people in the marketplace to start um, getting people educated, and I think it's more of the, like the, the team has their own thing that they can do. They can show people the arena and, and look, they're, they're picking up games. So when there were games being played, they were on here. Uh, they were certainly on TV. I think even some of the radio stations picked us up something here up, but it seems to me like what they haven't figured out yet is they better get on this end quickly if they want to catch that wave because it is a massive opportunity for media outlets to grow audience because there is such a massive void after the Hawks. I think two things have happened that have, have hurt the Kraken um, since they got a franchise and they got the franchise uh, almost two years ago to the day. Uh, I think next week or the week after will be the two year anniversary. They, they, they had to wait that extra year. They were given the three-year wait instead of the two. It was yep. two years already. It would be a disaster now because of COVID, but, you know, theoretically, we'd already be playing there. Uh, asking to wait another three years after that long arena battle that, that everybody in this market endured, that's an awful lot. And it's tough. I can tell you, it's tough for me to fill, you know, even a, even a nominal amount of hockey coverage uh, in between other things that I'm doing right now, just because there's been nothing really going on. It's been very slow. So it's tough to build momentum that way. And I think that extra year really hurt the momentum of the crack. And I think they've got to try to find a way to start it going. And I think they are planning to find a way to get it going within the next year. Then that brings us to our second problem. The second problem is the coronavirus. Um, that nobody saw that coming. Um, it, it just hit people all of a sudden. And now we don't even know when the NHL is going to play this season that's coming before the Kraken season. So it's tough for the Kraken now to start generating momentum towards their season when we don't even know when they're going to start this next season. And I think that's, that, that's, that's another problem. So it's a twofold problem. If they were playing hockey right now, there'd be all kinds of opportunity for the Kraken to generate momentum for maybe their future radio partner to put some of the games on the air. Um, but that's not happening because there's no games. So th those are two problems that are really uh, weighing against the Kraken right now. I think the NBA waiting to come into this market is going to help the hockey team establish a foothold. Uh, that said, it, it's, it's going to take some work. Um, they've got to establish themselves here as a good team. They can't, they can't be out there not making the playoffs for the first three years. That's not going to work. They have to be at least a, a 500 or better team 
and have a shot at the playoffs in their first year and make the playoffs in their second year. I, that's, I, I firmly believe that, that, that that's what it's going to take um, to really establish a toehold. That said, hockey is a very cool sport to watch live. Um, it, it's, you're spending a lot of money on it, yes, but the product that you're seeing in, in there is, is very exciting. Uh, a lot more so for some fans than what they see on TV. I can watch both because I've been weaned on it since I was five years old. But, you know, for the newcomer fans, some of them don't necessarily like, they find it hard to follow on TV, but following it live is something else. And, you know, they're going to fill that arena. They've sold uh, quite a few tickets. I think they're, they're close to maxing out on their ticket sales. So, I mean, that's going to be, that's going to be good. It's going to sell a lot of people in the game. And, it, and there's going to be a cool factor to it. I mean, it's going to be the nicest sporting venue in the city. And I don't say that lightly because I'm a huge fan of, uh, of T-Mobile Park. I always have been, even since I was coming here with the Blue Jays, I thought it was my favorite part in baseball. I think it, it's held up very well age-wise. I think it's great. I, I think um, uh, CenturyLink Field, whatever they're calling it today, the new, uh, uh, I don't even what's it called? Lumen? Lumen Field? Lumen. Um, Lumen bought CenturyLink. Right, yeah, yeah, Lumen Field. I, I think it's a nice-looking stadium, too. If it was me, I would have put a roof on it. I can't understand why they didn't do that. Um, it's, it's like you're living in denial if you don't think it's going to rain here after the month of October. So, um, you know, personally, I wouldn't have done that to my fans. So that's not my all-time favorite park, but it, it's still a very nice facility. Um, spent a lot of time in there covering the Sounders soccer team. So, so I, I, you know, I've gotten to know it fairly well. Um, but this is going to be something else. This is going to be something nobody has seen. This arena is going to be one of the best arenas in the world uh, from everything I've seen from the specs that they're showing. So it's going to be cool to be in there. It's going to be a place you want to go to be seen. And believe me, they're going to have, I'm sure they're going to make some kind of discount for people that want NBA season tickets uh, if you have the hockey tickets as well. So I, th I think they're coming up with ways to make the two teams coexist and, and make as much money as they can off of that. But starting off, yeah, they're going to have to sell the game here, do a better job than they have, I think, up till now. Um, I think they're trying to pace themselves. And I think now, though, you know, we're, we're probably at about a year. They're probably going to start, I would say, by November of next year. I'd be surprised if they don't, you know, November, maybe December at the latest. They'll start the, the Kraken season. Depends what the NHL wants to do. Uh, so within this next year, I expect to see them start their finishing kick. They really have to start, maybe not the sprint, but they have to kind of kick it in a gear a little more than they have uh, up to this point. You know, and if I were them, I would probably hire a coach sooner rather than later. I mean, if they really are going to go out and hire Gerard Gallant, you know, what, what's the use of letting him sit out there for, for five more months? Bring him on now and start your planning. You know, get some momentum in this marketplace. Um, you know, only because you asked, uh, they can afford a few more months of the salary. I think the I think the reason they're waiting on Gerard Gallant is I think bad things are happening in Carolina, and I think they're hoping that Rod Brindamore is going to be available. I'm actually fully convinced that's what they're hoping for. Um, that a couple of times, not not in the last six or seven months, but yeah, no, I I I truly believe they would love to get Rod Brindamore. I mean, a year ago he looked like he was set there. He just taken them to the uh, final four and, and uh, sorry, the conference final and, um, you know, a long-term extension seemed in the works, but yeah, it's weird. And uh, yeah, that was the owner. The owner has a, has a right to sell the team back to the Carmanos uh, coming up. That window's about to close. And I cannot imagine what revenues look like for that guy right now. And if I had the ability to, push it back and get my money back for that acquisition, that would be pretty, uh, that would look pretty good to me. So that could make all kinds of things happen there. Who knows? Speculation for sure. But lots of things for us to talk about. I hope uh, as we get closer and things do happen, we can have you back and keep, keep talking about the evolution of the Kraken market. That would be good. And I'll let you actually get some questions in this time. I won't <laughs> hog the, the entire conversation. I get told a lot some of the uh some of the local radio guys who have me on tend to just go out for a cup of coffee and just let me ramble <laughs> he is jeff baker he is his title now is hockey writer for the seattle times which is nice to see as a hockey fan and uh hopefully we will have him back when there's more cracking news to talk about we'll see you next time on in the press row